There we go. Good to see you this morning. And uh, just to be with you again today, welcome to all of you who are joining us online. Really glad you're able to join us as well. Uh, We're in a series called Grounded, working through our statement of faith and uh, really looking at Orthodox Christian doctrine. That's really what it is. But I wonder, have you ever thought about that word, um, orthodox, or what orthodoxy is? Orthodoxy, you know, it's really a compound Greek word, uh, two parts. The first part, ortho, which in our area we're kind of familiar with, uh, people in the orthopedic industry, right? Ortho, do you know what that means? It means uh, straight, it means right, it means correct. So for example, an orthodontist, what do they do? They make your teeth straight. They straighten them out. How about uh, an orthopedist? Well, they uh, work with maybe either disformities or uh, misalignments or broken bones, and they, again, try to align them and make them straight and correct and right again. So that's ortho, right, being right. And then uh, doxy, it comes from the word doxa, uh, which can mean, mean belief, what we believe. It's So orthodoxy then is simply correct belief. We get the word doctrine from that. It's correct belief. Well, we've been looking at at correct belief according to God's word and uh, what our statement of faith teaches. And uh, as we've worked through today, we're going to get to another ortho. You ready for it? See if you know this word, orthopraxy. Do you know that one? In, in our eighth article in our statement of faith, uh, it's an article that really teaches of orthopraxy, not, not just what we believe, but then, uh, well, again, it's two words, ortho, right, and correct. Uh, praxy, praxis is the Greek word there, and we get our English word practice from it. So orthopraxy is correct practice. In other words, it's how we're supposed to live in light of what we believe, now, sometimes in churches, uh, they can err on the side of, of orthodoxy and no orthopraxy. Like the only thing that matters is just believing the right things uh, or articulating the same things, you know, and saying the right things. Uh, but then there's, you never see it lived out. On the other side, uh, sometimes the church can maybe focus too much on orthopraxy, just doing the right things, but they don't believe the right things. So they might, might do things that are, biblical and good and whatever else, or even ritualistic, but their faith isn't in the only one who can save them, which is Christ, do you see? And so biblical Christianity weds these two together, according to the Bible, in a way that they're inseparable, that our our orthodoxy leads to, ought to lead to orthopraxy, right practice. And so that's where we're headed this morning. And our eighth article of our statement of faith we're part of the Evangelical Free Church of America, the EFCA, and we all are united by this same statement of faith that we're working through and kind of teaching through. And article number eight speaks of, you're gonna see it here as we read it together, orthopraxy, living rightly. So let's, let's read this together. We believe that God's justifying grace must not be separated from his sanctifying power and purpose. God commands us to love him supremely and others sacrificially and to live out our faith with care for one another, compassion toward the poor and justice for the oppressed. 
with God's word, the spirit's power, and fervent prayer in Christ's name. We're to combat the spiritual forces of evil. In obedience to Christ's commission, we're to make disciples among all people, always bearing witness to the gospel in word and deed. So with that, let me pray. And uh, then we're gonna dive into this together. Father, uh, thank you for Jesus. And uh, Lord, thank you for your word where we can uh, learn not only correct belief and how to be saved and be justified and redeemed, but also uh, learn from you correct uh, practice, correct behavior in our life. And Lord, how one ultimately leads to the other and not two. So Holy Spirit, as I uh, teach and uh, preach your word, would you speak to and through me? Um, Might you work in such a way that we desire to change, desire to live lives of holiness before you, uh, that that right practice and behavior uh, for your glory, for others' good, and for our joy. Thanks for Jesus. He's our only hope. We pray all this through him. Amen. If you got your Bible, open up with me to 1 Peter. First uh, Peter, be towards the end of your Bible if you're not familiar with it. And if you don't have a Bible with you, we'll have it here on screen as well. But I'm gonna start in verse three and we're gonna start to see a little bit of this come out. Uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Peter writes. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to to an inheritance that is kept, or excuse me, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. You, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. You know, as we read this and as we look at this this morning, I want you to see a couple things. I want you to see, uh, number one, that God saves you, that God saves you. But not only does he save you, he changes you. That God saves us and, you might circle it, changes us. It's his justifying grace, as we declared, and his sanctifying power. They're they're wed together. Um, For instance, if we work back through this again, we see uh, in verse three, blessed be the the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. He's the one who does the work of saving you, of of justifying you, of declaring you to be righteous. And notice, it it doesn't say according to all of Josh's good works. It doesn't say according to the fact that Josh has gone to church his whole life. It doesn't say according to the fact that Josh does this, doesn't do that, and might do this, that God saved him. No, it's according to God's great mercy that he saved me and that he saved you. It has nothing to do with our goodness and everything to do with God's goodness. Mercy is when I don't get what I do deserve. And it's kind of a flip side of the same coin with grace. 
If you flip the coin over, you grace is when I do get what I don't deserve. And so his justifying grace, you could say his justifying mercy, it it saves us. It, it, It makes us and declares us to be righteous. You know, uh, that's what, that's what God does. On the basis of Christ's death, God pronounces that, that we're in union with Christ. And, and you know, really what he's, what he's saying there in declaring you and I righteous, if you've trusted Christ, he's saying, uh, this is my child. And because of what Jesus has done, they have fulfilled every commandment of the law. That's really what's being credited to your account. Fulfilling every command of scripture. Now, have you done that? No, neither have I. But it's been credited to me because Jesus has. It's his justifying grace. It's free gift. It's given to me. Um, we read this already in 1 Peter, but look at this in Romans 5. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? You've been declared righteous by his justifying grace. And you might just jot off to the side, if you're taking notes, off to the side of justifying grace, uh, Jesus's death. Because that's what accomplishes and gives you that justifying grace. His death does that. He, 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 He changes you and makes you right before a perfect and holy and mighty God and forgives you of your sin and cleanses you. But you know what's great news is he doesn't leave you right there and then say, all right, good luck. See you when you die. There's more to it than that. There's also God's sanctifying power, not only his justifying grace, but his sanctifying power. You know what sanctification is? If justification is where I'm declared right before perfect and holy God and and forgiven, and then my sin is atoned for. But sanctification is where he actually not only declares me righteous, but begins to make me holy, like literally in my behavior. Like the way I live, I start to live more and more like Jesus. I get conformed more and more into the image of his son. And that sanctifying work takes place all throughout the life of a believer after they've trusted Christ. Until one day, Uh, He'll glorify us and we'll be perfect, but that won't happen until Jesus returns. But between now and then, if you're a follower of Jesus, you should be growing. And so if if, if justifying grace is Jesus's death, sanctifying power is really my death, the death of my sin. It's dying to myself and becoming more and more alive in my behavior towards Christ and towards God. And and, uh, that's exactly... Uh, why God saves us is to change us, to make us holy. You know, uh, you might say it like this. Another way to think of it is that if your faith hasn't changed you, it probably hasn't saved you. That's a harsh statement, isn't it? But here's, here's what I mean by that. See, God's justifying grace and his sanctifying power is making me right with God and then uh, growing me to be more like Christ, they cannot be separated. And in fact, one is the evidence of the other. His sanctifying power in my life where I'm being changed and I'm growing to be more like Christ is evidence of the fact that I've actually laid hold of his justifying grace. 
Jesus says it like this in in ways that's maybe a little easier to understand. He said, uh, you can judge a tree by its fruit. (laughs) That that's how you know what kind of tree it is based on the fruit it produces. And he was saying that in, in light of, you know, you can tell if a person has really trusted Christ and really received his justifying grace based on what? Their behavior. If your faith hasn't changed you, or, or maybe better said, if it isn't changing you, you gotta ask a little bit, is it really, and has it saved me? Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers from over a hundred years ago, he said something really similar. He said this, he said, the grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. Just meaning that uh, you'll know a tree by its fruit. Now, in saying this, uh, you need to understand that after you trust Christ, he's, he's changing you, the spirit is changing you, sanctifying you by his power to be more like Jesus. That doesn't mean you're never gonna screw up again. That doesn't mean you're never just gonna, the bottom's not gonna fall out some days because you still have sin within you. You're still gonna screw up. So do I. But here's, here's the reality though. If, if, if Jesus has redeemed you and saved you and justified you by his grace, the difference is you, you don't keep diving to the deck and staying there. You're like, no, I, I realize I, I can't be there. I've got to turn. I've got to repent. This is who I am. I got to pursue holiness. And the spirit by his power helps you in that. Do you see? And so uh, if your faith isn't, I, I maybe like that better. If it isn't, changing you, you should ask, has it saved you? And if not, then to repent and turn to Christ. Well, uh, these two things, they can't be separated as justifying grace and sanctifying power. He saves us and changes us. But why? Why does he do it? Well, let's keep reading a little more here in First Peter, and I think we'll see uh, exactly why. Uh, look at verse uh, 15. Or sorry, verse eight, excuse me, I'm getting ahead of myself. Though you have not seen him, Peter writes, you love him. Though you don't now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See, uh, God saves us and changes us so that uh, we would grow to love him even though we haven't seen him, that we would in fact love him supremely, to love him supremely. You know, that's, that's what you and I are called to do with our lives. In fact, uh, Jesus was asked one time by a group of Pharisees what the greatest commandment was, the greatest command in all of scripture. You know, in the Old Testament, um, uh, back in the law, actually the first five books, 613 commands for God's people. And so the Pharisees, in a desire to obey all of those, set up all these rules to do it. But then when Jesus came along, uh, they, they, they weren't a fan of his. And so they're trying to trap him. Matthew writes, they were trying to test him. And they said, teacher, tell us in, in all the law, what's the greatest command? Meaning of those 613, which one's the greatest? Because you, they were testing because they wanted to trap him. And I, I imagine they're thinking, well, if he says this one, I'm gonna come back with these five. But if he says this one, well, then I've got these three or four that I can get him with. And so what about these? But Jesus says something profound. He quotes uh, from that law to them from Deuteronomy 6. And he says, the greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord your God 
with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. To, to love him, how? Supremely, that's what he's saying. That's what that text is saying. We'll get to the second half of what Jesus says here in a moment. But you know, in the 1640s, there was a group of Christians in England who, who got together and they were gonna put pen to paper and, and really write out uh, what, what that meant to love God supremely. What did it mean to believe the right things and then live them out? And they began asking uh, one question in particular, what is our purpose in life? That's really where they started. Why do we exist? Why are we here? And uh, the way they asked it though is what's our chief end? This is the 1640s and here's what they wrote. They said, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's how the Westminster Catechism begins. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And I think that's a fabulous statement. And uh, let's unpack it a little bit. First, they said that our, our primary purpose in life is number one, to glorify God. <clears throat> you know, that's kind of an astonishing thought, isn't it? Especially when you consider that all of creation exists to bring glory and fame and, and majesty to God, to, to honor him. That's the purpose of, of your life and my life too. That's why we were created, to, to glorify God. I mean, we think of it often, maybe the, the mountains, the stars, clearly the Bible says they were put there to bring glory to God. The trees, uh, scripture writes, even clap their hands to bring glory to God. Isaiah 55, you can read about that. Did you hear any trees in the wind last night? The windstorm clapping their hands, bringing glory to God. Well, in the New Testament, uh, the apostle Paul puts the same thought this way. He says this in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. He says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You might be thinking, okay, well, everything's supposed to glorify God. I'm supposed to, but what does that mean exactly? Well, it just means that, that in, in every action you take, in every area of life, you're, you're living and going about it in such a way that uh, if people might look at it and say, their God is pretty great. It honors him and not you. You know, sometimes we think uh, we can only give glory to God um, you know, doing, uh, I'll call them churchy things. You know, coming to church, reading the Bible, singing, that sort of stuff. But you know, the reality is uh, that we live all of our lives before God. There's a Latin phrase to express it, quorum Deo, that, that we always live before the face of God. And so that means everything you do is before God's face. And that means everything you do, everything you think can bring glory to him, not just, you know, religious churchy things, but even uh, going for a walk, um, you can glorify God. Uh, going to work, loving your neighbor, building something, creating something, baking something, eating something. Paul said, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. Enjoying him through it, not simply the act or simply the creation. It brings glory to him. You know, so what that means is that it's not just strong, you know, super Christians that can glorify God. 
It's everybody. Even if you're struggling to believe, you can glorify him and honor him. Well, let's return back to their question. What's our purpose? The chief end of mankind is to glorify God. And the second part, I love, to, to enjoy him forever. See, they realized when they were writing this, we'd exist not just to glorify God, but to enjoy him. That's God's plan for you. Do you ever think about that? To enjoy him? That same God who is the creator of the universe, who holds everything together by the might of his power, who isn't bound by space or time, he wants to have such a close relationship with you that you can say, I just really enjoy being with him. I enjoy who he is. I enjoy learning and seeing how he satisfies my heart. The psalmist wrote it this way, Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You know, a lot of times we don't think about God as someone to enjoy, do we? We really don't. Think about it though where you love to worship him, love spending time with him, thinking about him, being with him, that he's your source of joy. To many, uh, God just is a bunch of rules and regulations. And not just people who aren't Christians, but even many of us who are Christians, we can tend to default to see God that way. Uh, He's probably just mad at me and angry with me all the time. He doesn't approve of me. Why would I want to be around him? And do you see? We buy into that thinking. We, we don't want to enjoy him. I mean, because why would you want to be around somebody who you don't really think likes you? But do you know the opposite's true? That God does hate your sin. Hear that. And he wants you to change because he saves you and changes you. But he does all that because he loves you. He loves you and loves to be with you. That's why every, every week when we leave here, we say you are loved. Why? Because a lot of times we don't really believe it and we need to be reminded. And there's a giant sign on the wall as you walk in the building, you are loved. Why? Because you are loved by God and he longs to be near you, for you to enjoy him. Do you have people in your life where you just enjoy being with them? Like something about when, when you're with them, it just kind of, Life just feels better, feels safer. You know, there's more joy in the room. You know, you can enjoy God in that same way. And uh, as you do, as you learn to enjoy him, considering as we did earlier singing all his goodness toward you, talking to him in prayer, um, he begins to make you holy. He sanctifies you. But it really, that begins, I'm convinced with, with you learning to love him supremely. And that that happens as you enjoy him. He does that work of sanctifying power where you, uh, the psalmist writes that uh, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. I remember when I was a kid and and growing up, I always thought that meant if I delight myself in God, he's gonna give me everything I want. Awesome. You know what it really means? It means delight yourself in the Lord and and he'll give you desires. He'll, He'll change you. It'll change the desires of your heart and your desires will become his desires and you'll, you'll grow in joy and in holiness and in all those things. But we're called to be holy. God's looking for people who are, who are consecrated, set apart for him. That's what 
That's what holy means. And that word sanctifying power, sanctifying means to set apart. That's the same, same word here as holy. It means to set apart, it means different. And in scripture, we read that God is what? He's holy, 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 completely set apart. And he's looking for people and he's calling us to be holy. In fact, Paul writes this to the church in Ephesus. He says, even as he chose us in Christ, in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, why? That we should be holy, set apart, blameless before him. Friends, he's called you and I to be holy, to live lives of holiness in thought, in word, in deed. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, he, he saved us and called us to a holy calling. And First Peter, Peter quotes from Deuteronomy when he says, he, he who called you is holy, so you also should be holy, different in your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy, God says. We're his children, we're to be like him, to be different, to be holy, to be weird in the good sort of way, <laughs> where you're just different and, and loving and kind and, and, and holy and, and killing sin in our lives and repenting when we do and being the first to apologize to someone when we've hurt them. You see, you're called to holiness. It doesn't just end with you being saved because if your faith hasn't actually also, and if it isn't changing you, there's a good question, has it saved you? Are you growing in this? You know, one way you can do that, or one way uh, is to develop some spiritual habits Sometimes you might've heard this referred to as a spiritual disciplines, you know, like memorizing God's word or reading scripture or spending time in prayer. You're just, just developing those habits. And as you do, those habits begin to change you. See, the, the, the gospel, God's word, is, it's the power of God to change you. And so memorizing scripture can help you in that. We're gonna see in a little while here how Jesus used scripture to, to live the life he was called to live, to live a holy life. You know, if you go to this website, if you go to wallacebible.com slash habits, we're just kind of slowly adding stuff there. There's a handful of different uh, like scripture memory verses you can download. There's some journals. There's links to uh, some worship music based on the Psalms. A handful of other things there just, just to try to help you. We'll keep adding to that. And some of those uh, scripture verses, by the way, if you even want, you can cut them out into little cards uh, even that match this series are out at the Connect desk, two different sets of them. And uh, just challenge you to start memorizing scripture. Let God's word begin to change you, develop some, some, some habits. Uh, well, the other piece though, is that we're to love others sacrificially. Love God supremely, but love others sacrificially. See, I didn't finish the thing that Jesus said was the greatest command. He said first, the greatest command when they're trying to trap him is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he says this, he says a second is very much like it. It's to love your neighbor like you love yourself. Because we all love ourselves. We do. And uh, love your neighbor in that way. And then Jesus says, if, if you do those two things, you'll fulfill all 613 of the others. 
And the guys who were trying to trap him were just kind of like, I guess I don't have anything to say to that. <laughs> They're just, it was a powerful statement that if we love God and love others, we call that the great commandment. If you're ever wondering what to do, how do I live a Christian life? Well, I, how do I be holy? I love God with all my heart and I love other people in a sacrificial way. Our statement of faith we read earlier, we declare that God commands us to love him supremely and others sacrificially and to live out our faith, to live it out. And then it it defines a few ways to do that. One, with care for one another. With care for one another. Do you know, uh, one of the things Jesus says is, uh, he, he says, this is how people will know you're my followers. If you have love for one another. Not if you go to the right church, not if you even believe and echo the right things or sing the right songs. No, it's if, if you live it out, if you really love one another. People are gonna see that and they're gonna know you're glorifying me. That they're, my, they're his followers. That's how they will know. This also reflects the one and others that show up so often in the New Testament. Paul especially writes about the ways we're to interact with and care for one another within the church. You know, he says to do good to everyone, especially to those who are in the household of faith. And uh, I'll give you a few from Romans here. Uh, Love one another with brotherly affection. Now, if you had brothers like me, you might realize, well, okay, so that means we're gonna fight a little bit every now and then. Yeah, but we still love one another, don't we? With brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Welcome one another, just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Be kind to one another, he tells the church in Ephesus, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. That's how we're to live, with care for one another. But you know, it can be really hard work to do that, can't it? But that's where the Holy Spirit's sanctifying power helps you do that, enables you to as you yield to him. And the, the thing is, though, we're not just supposed to love one another. The, to the church in Thessalonica, Paul says, uh, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. You're like, oh, come on, Josh. Like, I can, I can, I can do it. I can be kind to people here and people I love, but that lady in the cubicle next to me, really? That guy down the line? My manager, my boss, good to everyone, my neighbor? Yeah, to everyone. To love God and love others sacrificially. And uh, one of the ways we do that is with uh, compassion for the poor and justice for those who are oppressed. See, a lot of times when our orthopraxy doesn't match our orthodoxy, people wonder if that orthodoxy is really true. When we don't live out what we say, it's pretty hypocritical. And and by the way, we're all hypocrites, including the guy up here teaching at times, right? We are. But we're to have compassion for the poor and to be like Jesus who in Acts 10, 38, we read that he went around doing good. Here's some of the ways he did that. Caring for the poor was a big one. He said, there will never cease to be poor in the land, quoting from 
Deuteronomy. They'll never, you'll never cease to have the poor around you, so, so care for them, love them in my name. And God's word is clear that as we care and have compassion for the poor, that, that really, well, here, Proverbs 19, 17, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he, the Lord, will repay him for his deed. But there's also some warnings about not caring about the poor among us. Don't rob the poor, Proverbs 22, because he's poor, or crush the gates of the, or crush the afflicted, excuse me, at the gate, for the Lord will plead their cause and he will rob, li- rob of life those who rob them. So God's kind of like, hey, if you're gonna rob the poor, I'm gonna take your life. <laughs> he, he hates that. He, he longs for us to, to love and care for those who are vulnerable and who are poor. And, and as we mentioned, not only with compassion for the poor, but with justice for the oppressed going around doing good. Uh, justice, by the way, is just the action of righteousness. It's putting righteousness in action. It's doing what's right. That's justice. Righteousness is, is what is right according to God's moral standards in his word. Making right decisions according to that righteousness. James, uh, Jesus' little brother, he wrote this. He said, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's a sin, James four seventeen. But we're to do justice, the way we say it in our statement of faith, to the oppressed. So who are the oppressed? Well, there's a whole list of people we could mention throughout the Bible, but Zechariah, for one, gives a summary of some of them in Zechariah 7, verse 9 and 10. He writes this, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, do what's right, do justice, show kindness and mercy to one another, and do not oppress the widow, there's one. The fatherless. There's another group. The sojourner. Or we uh, might read that as the immigrant. The one who's not home. The poor. Let none of you devise evil against one another in your heart. And you think of each of those categories of people, someone who's a widow, who's lost their spouse, uh, uh, an orphan, the fatherless, uh, those who are oppressed, who are, who are sojourners in a, in a foreign land, maybe don't speak the same language, don't know how to get by in life. Those who uh, have, have faced all kinds of other difficulties, the poor, maybe they've getting, gotten sucked into to different addictions and drugs and whatever else, to, to do good and do justice for the oppressed, do what's right for them. Hey, next Sunday, I encourage you to come back um, one of our missionaries, uh, Roberto and Robin Paz, will be here. Roberto and Robin uh, serve <clears throat> in uh, southern Louisiana uh, among Honduran people. Uh, Roberto is, is Honduran himself, and they've planted a church there, and it's filled primarily with Honduran immigrants, who many of whom have uh, come to the U.S. just in, in recent uh, years and months. And so it'll be exciting for you to hear from him and about his ministry. Isaiah says, learn to do good, to seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. There's so many areas in life, friends, where we can do those things, isn't it? Or aren't there? Uh, With with the unborn, with uh, with the poor, again, with with immigrants. You know, my, my heart, one of the things I love about the free church that we're part of the mission of the free church is to multiply transformational churches among all people, all peoples. 
You know, my, my heart and one of my prayers lately and uh, in recent years has just been that, that God would, would bring more and more people to us, bring us to more and more people. People who are different than us, look different, maybe talk different, who uh, we can, can do justice and do right and care for, and maybe even plant churches. Would you be praying that with me? I don't know what that looks like exactly, but, but I know God's heart is for people and he calls his church to be at the forefront then of, of reaching and caring for and loving those people and doing justice. Micah sums it up well, Micah 6, 8. He's told you what's good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to do what's right, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Well, another way uh, that we love others sacrificially is by making disciples, introducing them to Jesus Christ. You know, uh, Jesus said, go therefore, make disciples of all nations. There it is, all nations, all people, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, uh, peace be with you, even as the Father sent me to all people, I'm sending who? You. Friends, we're sent to love people and invite them to follow Jesus with us. You know, all those things though, loving God supremely, loving others sacrificially, you know, caring for one another. It feels like, does it feel like I'm just piling on more and more and more to do? Well, here's, it does a little bit, doesn't it? But here's the good news, that, that you and I have the same three resources available to us to live those things out that Jesus employed in his humanity. You see, Jesus is fully God and he's fully God who, when he was conceived and when he was born, he added flesh to his, to his deity. He added humanity to his deity, full humanity. So that's why he's called the God man, fully God, fully man. But when he lived his life on this earth as a human being, as a man, he veiled his deity. Paul, Paul writes to the church in Philippi saying, he didn't count equality with God as something to be grasped. So it, it, he veiled his deity. He lived fully from his humanity. He never pulled out his God card, so to speak. But then how did he live the life that he lived? He never sinned. How did he do that in his full humanity? How did uh, he perform miracles in his full humanity? Well, he did it with the same three resources that he's left for you and I. You see this in his temptation. And those resources, by the way, are the word, the Holy Spirit, and prayer. In Jesus' temptation in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, uh, Matthew tells us that the, the Spirit led Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted. Jesus was continually led by the Holy Spirit and filled with the Spirit. If you wanna know what it looks like to be filled with the Holy Spirit, all you gotta do is look at Jesus. No one was more full of the Holy Spirit than Jesus Christ. So he, he had the Spirit. He also had God's Word. When he was tempted in the wilderness, when Satan tempts him, what was Jesus' reply each time? Do you remember? Here's what he did. It, Satan would tempt him, you know, why don't you do this? And Jesus would reply always with, each time with what? With scripture, with God's word. He'd say, yeah, but it's written. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. Yeah, but it's written. You shall uh, not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He, he, he quoted scripture to him. 
Friends, you and I have that resource available to us. We can hear from God in his word. We have his spirit who dwells within us as we trust Christ. And then we can also talk to God in prayer. You know, so often when, uh, when, when Jesus couldn't be found, do you know where he was? He was off praying, enjoying God. Sometimes the disciples in a panic, where is he? Where were you? Where was he? He was, he was off enjoying God, spending time in prayer. Learn to develop some of these disciplines of being in the word, these habits of, of spending time in prayer, talking to God. It'll begin to change you. You'll love him more supremely. You'll learn to love others and want, actually want to, sacrificially. And he'll do that work of not just justifying you, but sanctifying you for God's glory. That's our chief end. For others' good and for your joy. Enjoying him forever. Let me pray.